This episode includes discussions of suicide. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For mental health resources, visit spotify.com slash resources. He's the notorious cult leader who convinced more than 900 of his faithful followers to end their lives en masse. They drank a concoction of fruit punch laced with cyanide. Saruti, of course, is talking about the November 18th, 1978 Jonestown Massacre. The followers had taken orders from their charismatic leader, Jim Jones, the preacher, civil rights activist, faith healer, and demagogue. Today, we're going to tell you about Jim Jones's religious community, the People's Temple, and how his promise of utopia turned into a Big Brother type of lifestyle with prison-like conditions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Every week, we're going to cover your favorite cults, faith followers, and secret societies. We'll look at how some of the biggest secretive societies and cults have made their fortunes. And how they've also managed to run in plain sight and permeate into your everyday life. And yes, today we're going to get into Jim Jones, Jonestown, and his People's Temple, a church that was groundbreaking for its promotion of racial and economic equality in an era of segregation. We'll get into how Jones's own impoverished upbringing motivated him to help people from marginalized communities and how he managed to lead hundreds of his followers to a so-called revolutionary suicide. It's the big one. It's the big kahuna. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in cults, which I hope you are because you're listening to this show, I would be quite astonished if you knew nothing about Jonestown. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely one that I feel, it's almost one of those cases, because obviously doing a true crime podcast, we kind of, I definitely have this sort of weird thing that happens to me every now and again, where a case is so big that I don't actually sit and get to know it much because I almost feel like I already know it just by passing information in the air and I wonder if people might feel the same way about Jones oh I think definitely I think that we we've never actually done it on red-handed but it is in our book which you can get from bookshops any good bookshop yeah (laughs) this episode is brought to you by anytime fitness forget dark alleys and cemeteries for some the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. All right, let's get into Jim Jones's early years. James Warren Jim Jones was born on May 13th, 1931 in rural Indiana. His father was a World War I veteran who suffered from alcoholism. The house Jim and his family lived in has been described as a shack with no plumbing. Jones was an intelligent child who had a fascination with Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, Mahatma Gandhi, and Adolf Hitler. He quite liked to play Hitler in the playground. Mm, he did, which I think didn't make him the most popular little child. No, he was, had no interest in being one of the Allies. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, one of Jones's childhood friends said of him, quote, he was obsessed with religion. He was obsessed with death. A friend of mine told me he saw Jimmy kill a cat with a knife. Dressed as Hitler. Dressed as Hitler, the cat or him? Both. Okay. <laughs> After Jones graduated high school, he got a job as a hospital orderly, and that's where he met his future wife, Marceline Baldwin, who was a nursing student. They married in 1949. They had one biological child and several adopted children. They called themselves the Rainbow Family because they were multiracial. And that's the thing I actually do have to kind of say in favor of Jim mm -hmm. Jones is that he doesn't just sort of preach racial no. uh, desegregation. He lives it. Yeah. Like he adopted children from multiracial backgrounds. He was the first white person in the state of Indiana to adopt a black child. Yeah. And Jones believed that his family and its nickname, the Rainbow Family, showed that all people were equal before God. And when he was about 20 years old, Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. The persecution of communists in the US during the infamous McCarthy hearings had frustrated him. Jones was also interested in religion and saw the power and money a person could make from it. He's very like, okay, okay, I'm down with communism. I understand why that is attractive to people. Everyone's equal, blah, 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 blah. However, I have a bit of a problem with the no God bit. So let's just put that back in. And also, I love money and power. And me. <laughs> and me. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Communism. Love it. Yeah, Stop persecuting exactly. the communists. But money and power from religion. Wait a minute. No king, no king. You yeah, fools. Exactly. I will be king. <laughs> scar from the Lion King thing. You're welcome. Jim Jones was influenced by the religious leader, Father Divine. Divine is an extremely famous drag queen, mm -hmm. and that's all I can think of when I, uh, when I think about that. Anyway, in the 1920s, Father Divine, the preacher, not the drag queen, or maybe the same, founded the Universal Peace Mission Movement. Father Divine was a charismatic black preacher who had a multiracial congregation, which for the era, as we said, was extremely controversial. Divine believed in desegregation and promoted economic empowerment. His followers worked for low or no wages. They pooled their money to buy residential properties and to establish businesses that would employ followers. Divine also claimed, the clues in the name, that he was God and that he had supernatural powers. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. 
Father Divine is not our problem here. No, no. But I would say um, he was treading, treading a path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Treading a path towards, uh, if only he'd had the chance. So Jim Jones is watching this from afar. But then in 1952, he was about 21 years old. And he got a job as a student pastor at the Somerset Methodist Church in a poor, predominantly white neighborhood in Indianapolis. And he was pretty good at it. By 1954, he'd opened his own small church. And by 1956, he was a Pentecostal ordained minister. Jones's church would eventually become known as the infamous People's Temple, which at first, he moves it around a bit later on, was based in Indianapolis. As far as naming things go, I think the People's Temple or People's Temple is an excellent it name. It is, isn't it? It's, a, it's very good. It's very, very good. So to help build his church membership, Jim Jones bought airtime on a local radio station and started broadcasting his sermons. Having grown up as an outsider, Jones empathized with the, quote, downtrodden, the poor, the non-whites in society. One of the stories he tells when he's older, how true this is, we don't know, but he tells a story of when he was at school wanting to bring a black friend home and his father refusing. And then he never goes home again and flies into a rage, blah, blah, blah. So he has a lot of, I think... At this stage in the game, he certainly is practicing what he's preaching. So Indianapolis, like we've mentioned already, was deeply segregated. And the church was one of very few places where blacks and whites actually sat together. And this was happening during racial segregation, so it was an enormous deal. The People's Temple was active in the civil rights movement. Jones was the head of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission and helped to desegregate public areas like movie theatres, restaurants and hospitals. So once again, at this point, not only is he practicing what he preaches, he's also making active change in the community. Members of his church provided assistance to the poor, including legal advice, clothing, food and housing. His church also ran a free restaurant and provided homes for the elderly and mentally ill. Many of Jones's followers were socially conscious and highly educated people who wanted to help their fellow man and serve God. Ding, da, da, ding, 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 cult. Again, this we've talked about this before. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about cults is the idea that they're just picking up the waifs and the strays, that they're scraping the bottom of the barrel to just get people who are marginalized. Of course, those people end up getting sucked into cults, but for exploitation of different types. When you're first building your cult, that first strata of new followers, you need them to be people who've got a lot of shit that they can get done. Mm -hmm. You want people that are incredibly talented, well-educated, intelligent, and highly industrious and conscientious. Yeah. And also, even better if you can find a bunch of people that feel like they need to have purpose and meaning in life. And extra double points if they're all really good looking. Oh, bingo. <laughs> and of course, we are smack in the middle of the Cold War era here. So Jones either had or claimed to have a fear of nuclear war. And sometime in the early 1960s, Jones came across a magazine article that listed the nine safest places to be if a nuclear catastrophe happened. I think I saw the same headline last week in the fucking like, <laughs> yeah, Gazette. I'd be surprised. <laughs> and one of these places was listed as Eureka, California. In 1965, he announced to his congregation that the world would be engulfed by a devastating thermonuclear war on July 15th, 1967. He even suggested that after the apocalypse, a socialist paradise would exist on Earth. So that same year, 
Jim Jones, his rainbow family, and about 70 of his followers moved to Redwood Valley in Northern California, about 150 miles from the safe haven of Eureka. Maybe property prices in Eureka were too high after the article came out and they were I like, mean, one would assume. 150 miles away is good enough, people. A lot of people were really scared of a thermonuclear war. I mean, I believe it. I believe it. Coming up, we'll get into how Jim Jones's anti-war, anti-capitalist messaging and miraculous healings got him thousands of fans and followers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So let's get into Jim Jones's Redwood Valley Commune and his growing religious community. By the early 1970s, Jim Jones abandoned all pretense of being a Christian minister and instead began preaching that he was the reincarnation of Buddha, Gandhi, Vladimir Lenin, and Jesus. If you had to pick one. Only of them or anyone? No, only of them. Okay. And then we can move on to anybody in the world. Sure, sure, sure. If I had to be the reincarnation of one of them, Mm. probably Buddha seems kind of chill. Yeah, I would say Buddha. Mm. I want to be a skinny one, though. Mm, Gandhi. No, they're skinny Buddhas. Oh, I thought it was the Buddha, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but there there are, like, um, images for him where he's skinny. Okay. (laughs) Great. (laughs) In his youth. So, after the People's Temple moved from Indianapolis to Redwood Valley, California, the congregation became a social welfare advocacy group and political organization. The People's Temple bought a number of properties in the Redwood Valley and established nine residential care facilities for the elderly, six homes for foster children, and a state-licensed ranch for mentally disabled adults. And Jones's wife was overseeing all of these purchases. Members also operated small food trucks, and they also sold grapes, which they grew on their property. So lots of fingers in lots of pies at this point. And like all good cults, members were expected to turn over personal wealth and, of course, do unpaid work for the church. And finally, but very importantly, break ties with all of their family members. To show their commitment to the church, members were asked to sign false testimonials that they had molested their children, which the church kept for potential blackmail. Took a sharp turn, didn't it? Yeah, it starts (laughs) getting real bad real quick. It's just like, 
Yeah, utopia. Yeah, homes for the elderly, yeah. interracial marriages, no problem. Absolutely, it's all very, you know, the United Colors of Benetton over here. Then bam. Yeah. Sign this. Yes. Piece of paper. What does it say? Don't read it. Yeah. Oh, I've read it. Oh my God. Why does it say I molested my child? <laughs> well, look, it's just a bit of insurance policy. Yeah. Just a little insurance. Obviously, those who had children were expected to raise them within the community. At its peak in the early 1970s, the church claimed a membership of almost 20,000 in California alone. So by 1976, the People's Temple had moved its headquarters from Redwood Valley to San Francisco. And while in San Francisco, Jim Jones's influence and involvement in local politics grew. That same year, the San Francisco mayor appointed Jones to the San Francisco Housing Authority. So this is when you start to see that Jim Jones doesn't just um, wield influence within Jonestown, within his community. He wields influence externally. Mm -hmm. And a lot of very powerful people have a lot of very good things to say about him. Yeah, because he was he was a renter crowd. Like mm-hmm. if you you call Jim Jones and he'll have thousands of people at your rally. Angela Davis, big fan. Harvey Milk, big fan. Big names. Oh, absolutely. And I would argue they were because of the things that he was preaching. The renter crowds were for the the normos, the proles. Mm. These influential people like the mayor and Angela and Harvey Milk, they're doing it because they think he's probably got something good to say. People were drawn to Jones's inclusive anti-war, anti-capitalist messages. And some members were intrigued by his faith healings in which he appeared to instantly heal sick or injured people, read minds, and even predict the future. He's very good at messaging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. He tells them what they want to hear. Absolutely. And, you know, Jones also grew up in part of the Bible Belt. So he saw yeah. the impact. When, when we said that he saw that religion could give you power and wealth and all of that good stuff, he really, really saw the direct impact of that. And yeah. I think he just trained himself to become a very good orator and be a very charismatic preacher. Oh, exactly. It's much easier to be a preacher than it is to be Hitler. And I think that he started off preaching the word of God, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, wait a minute. Now they're all listening to me. Why am I shelling for someone else? Mm -hmm. I'll show for myself. Jones preached a doctrine that he called apostolic socialism, uh, which he sometimes referred to as God socialism or divine socialism. He's putting the the God back into communism because those nasty communists in Russia, they don't like God at all. And that's the only problem. And as we all know, godlessness is next to communism. (laughs) Divine socialism was committed to being a society based on total equality, where all things were held in common, where there were no rich or poor, and where there were no racial divisions among human beings. In one sermon, Jones said, quote, My desire is to see a perfect utopia based on nonviolence, based on apostolic socialism, as it was on the day of Pentecost, when they all had things in common. I mean, it sort of feels like he thinks sitting around a table and eating together is the equivalent of socialist utopia. Yeah. Then what happens Which after? Which I suppose on a small scale. Uh, possibly. But then uh, who's cleaning up after? That's the question. Who cooked the last supper? That's what I want to know. <laughs> and Jones's sermons, famous and effective as they were, They were also incredibly fucking long. They could last six or more hours. He really liked the sound of his own voice. Which is quite important Mm -hmm. as a Pentecostal preacher. Mm -hmm. A former congregant said of Jones's services, quote, he would talk for hours about sex, about how good he was at sex, 
I presume, or in general, and how women should think he was making love to them, not their husbands. Jones's former bodyguard claimed that Jones had one of his secretaries arrange for women church members to sleep with him, which I'm, yes, he did, that is a fact. And he reportedly had numerous affairs with both men and women in the congregation. He also claimed, even though all of his uh, bisexual activities were happening door to door, uh, he claimed to be the only heterosexual on earth. Weird flex. Weird flex, yeah. Mm. And uh, all of this sexing got him in trouble. Uh, in 1973, he was arrested in a Hollywood theater on a lewd conduct charge. And I think if you're arrested in a Hollywood theater for being lewd, you're probably having a wank. It's not very divine of you, is it? Towards the end of 1973, the People's Temple decided to establish an agricultural mission in Guyana, South America. Their goal here was to provide food for the hungry. The members also wanted to escape the injustice and racism they felt in the United States. Guyana and the People's Temple had similarities. Guyana was a socialist and mostly non-white country at the time. Jones's followers were about 75% black, and the People's Temple had a very socialist philosophy. The People's Temple property in Guyana was close to 4,000 acres, which of course, no shocks here, they named Jonestown. And by they, I mean Jim. Mm, he wasn't going to call it everyone, else ch- everyone else's town. No. God town. No. Jesusville. To everyone else's town. No. Everyone's town would be far too socialist. He's like, it's yeah, Jonestown. <laughs> and this property included a large communal kitchen, medical facilities, a school, dormitory-style housing, a daycare center, and a large open-air pavilion that became the community's central meeting place. Everything was built by members who worked 18-hour days. I'm guessing also this 4,000 acres, um, a lot cheaper in Guyana probably than trying to build it in San Francisco. Yes, and it would all need chopping down because it would quite literally have been jungle. So you've got to clear it all before you can even start building, which is why they all went in stages. It's not like they all just descended all at once. In August 1977, a US magazine published an explosive piece about the People's Temple. The article revealed that Jim Jones faked his faith healings, gasp, and pressured congregants to turn over their paychecks, bank accounts, and real estates to the church. The magazine also revealed that the People's Temple conducted something called catharsis sessions on its members. And this was a type of punishment where members were lined up and paddled for infractions as small as nodding off during his sermons. And we know about these because Jim Jones recorded everything. Yeah, once again, bloody can't get enough of listening to his own voice. Yeah, nope, nope, nope. Before this article was published, there were plans for members to gradually relocate to Guyana. Like I said, there was a lot of building that needed to be done, but the article and a lot of other negative media reports led Jim Jones to hurry the process. He was like, oh, the golden days are over. Harvey Milk is not going to remain my friend much longer. I need to get out of here. And that summer, hundreds of People's Temple members moved to Guyana to live on the Jonestown settlement. Yeah, there was a real turning point where he was like, there was um, a group of people that organized themselves after their loved ones ended up in Jonestown who were really mobilizing and getting political support behind them. And he was like, right, we need to leave now. Yeah, yeah now yeah. is the time. Absolutely. And I think it's quite easy as an outsider to be like, well, 
what on earth would convince these people to move to the middle of the jungle in Central America because they are rational, intelligent, educated people who had jobs and lives and stuff before the church. I think Jonestown is one of the most specific examples of how, because yeah, we've covered how the motives in the beginning were considered extremely positive. Loads of people were sick of capitalism in the 70s. Everyone was sick of racism, of segregation, blah, blah, blah. You can see why people were attracted to this other way of life. But the problem with Jonestown is once you're in, it's very, very difficult to get out. And when you're being abused so consistently, sleep deprived, protein deprived and brainwashed, it's extremely difficult to leave. It's especially even harder to leave when you're in the jungle with no passport. Absolutely. Up next, we're going to discuss exactly how Jim Jones used all of the tactics Hannah just mentioned to convince more than 900 people to end their lives on November 18th, 1978. So... Let's get into life on the Jonestown settlement in Guyana and the year leading up to that tragic November day. Jonestown was once described as a small town in need of infrastructure. One person who visited the place said it was like an unfinished construction site. Jim Jones reportedly ran Jonestown like a prison camp. There were armed guards who stood at the compound's perimeter. They also had, like in the Shawshank Redemption, where he plays Flight of the Bumblebee, they had this like tannoy system that would just play tapes of Jim Jones's sermons round the clock. And members were forced to give up their passports and all of their money. Some former members said that they were completely cut off from the outside world. Which they were. Yeah, I mean, they're in the middle of the jungle in Guyana. Exactly, and all of their letters are censored. But meanwhile, back in the United States, there is a board of people who are Mm -hmm. working away, who have either lost family members to the church or they've seen some of these molestation letters and they are desperately trying to get someone down to Guyana to see what's going on. Social psychologist Philip Zimbardo has studied and written about Jim Jones. And he says that Jones used the type of mind control that George Orwell described in his book, 1984. And here are some of the parallels that Zimbardo picked up on between 1984 and Jonestown. Firstly, you've got Big Brother influence. Jones got his followers to spy on one another. And he also, like Hannah just said, blasted messages from loudspeakers across Jonestown on an almost continuous loop. Then number two, self-incrimination. Jones instructed followers to give him written statements about their fears and mistakes. And then, if they disobeyed him, he used that information to humiliate them. Of course, in 1984, the main character's resistance is broken when he's subjected to his worst fear of being covered in rats. Do it to Julia. (laughs) Then number three, suicide drills. Orwell's main character said that, quote, the proper thing was to kill yourself before they got you in a threat of war. And in a direct parallel to this, Jones had his followers conduct practice suicide drills, which I believe he called White Nights. He did, yeah. Right up until November the 18th, 1978. And he also did things where 
he would give people, because sometimes he told them they were drills, and sometimes he wouldn't tell them they were drills. And the people that wouldn't take what he thought, what mm-hmm. they thought was going to kill them, essentially poison, um, he would know who was not loyal to him. Yeah, and he did that. He did that in California too. He didn't even wait till Guyana the first time he did that. And then finally, number four, distorting people's perceptions. Jones made his followers give him daily thanks for good food and work, even though the members were starving and working six and a half days a week. In George Orwell's book, this is of course known as Newspeak. In 1978, former member Deborah Layton, who managed to escape Jonestown, went to authorities for help. She wrote an affidavit asking the US government for help, saying that 1,000 people were being held against their will in Jonestown. After hearing from a couple of members, including Deborah Layton, about what was going on in Jonestown, Congressman Leo Ryan visited the settlement. He was accompanied by several journalists and relatives of Temple members. When Ryan was on the property, two members passed him a note saying, please help us get out of Jonestown. 15 members in total told the congressman that they wanted to leave. And then what happens next, right? Leo Ryan gets handed this note. A journalist who is with him then hands the note to Jim Jones. I really think, because like when Leo Ryan first gets there, he gives this speech in like the pavilion. He's like, oh, well, it seems like everyone's having a really great time here. And then there's this like rapturous applause. And then they're walking around and they get past this note. And I really, really think that the delegation had no idea how much danger they were in. Yeah, they're about to find out though. Because on the 18th of November, 1978, Jim Jones ordered some of his followers to kill the congressman, the defectors and the journalists. So when they were waiting for planes to take them home, People's Temple gunmen shot and killed five of the visitors and several others were injured. Congressman Ryan was himself one of the dead. Back at the settlement, Jones told his followers that the congressman had been murdered and that revolutionary suicide was the only possible outcome for the cult. He obviously realized he can't control himself and he kills a US congressman. And then he's like, it's game over. If I thought they were after me before, I'm fucked now. And he's like, right, it's time for revolutionary suicide. And he said that they had to end their lives or else the Guyanese military would take their children away. And then one, because he always promised that if Guyana didn't work out, they could all move to Russia mm-hmm. um, in, in socialist utopia, as it mm-hmm. were. Mm-hmm. And then one lady, you can hear this all on the on the death tapes, on the Jonestown death tapes, um, this lady asking, what about Russia? And he's like, it's too late for that. Yeah, yeah, it's too late for everything. And uh, Jones's followers actually drank a fruit punch that was laced in cyanide for their revolutionary suicide. And in an interesting twist, given that uh, he was threatening people's kids being taken away from the Guyanese military, the children were the first to drink the poison. The theory behind which being, if a parent watches their child die, they're less likely to want to live. A few people managed to escape into the jungle that day. Several dozen members, including several of Jones's sons, were in another part of Guyana at a basketball tournament at that time. In total, only 33 Jonestown members survived. Jones himself didn't drink the poison. He was found with a bullet wound to the head. Possibly murder, but more likely that it was suicide. Jim Jones was 47. 
When the commune was searched after the deaths, thousands of drugs were found, including quaaludes, Demerol, Valium, Morphine, and Thorazine, which is used to calm people. Two former members told the New York Times in 1978 that the drugs were used to control those who might defect. And here's a pretty horrifying fact that will uh, end this pretty horrifying episode of Jonestown on. Until the 9-11 attacks, the tragedy of Jonestown was the single largest number of American civilian casualties in a single non-natural event. Would you like a nicer fact to end on? Yes, please. Jim Jones, before he becomes preacher, cult leader extraordinaire. Door-to-door monkey salesman. Look it up, it's true. And there you have it. That's all you need to know about Jim Jones. Horrible, horrible piece of work, but also door-to-door monkey seller. Absolutely. And they they found a, a chimp. I was trying to remember the name Mr. of the chimp. Mr. Muggs. Mr. Muggs the chimp. They found a chimp at Jonestown as well. And the the, the chimp was also dead. Um, I can't remember if the chimp was shot. He was shot. Yeah. He was shot, like Jim Jones. And uh, the chimp was called Mr. Muggs. There you go. So there you go. That's also quite sad. But yes, 909 people. Yeah. I mean... And Mr. Muggs. And Mr. Muggs. You're just... Uh, death toll like that it really is mind-boggling so i mean this is all the root cause of one man i would argue you know he, he convinced them all yes but using positive uh, reasons using positive ideology is how he got everybody into this and then he really went so far into isolating them they weren't just like in the mountains in california where they maybe you could argue they could have got away somehow they were in the jungle in guyana a thousand people trapped there there was no way out what were they meant to do and this is how it ended yeah you're much more likely to make impulsive decisions if you're anxious and depressed and starving in the jungle yeah and i think if you were to say you know was this a mass suicide or was it a mass murder for me it's a mass murder yeah, because I agree. there is no real free will here for these people. They were between a rock and a hard place. And also, they had been ground down for so long that I would say they weren't even capable of making logical decisions by this point. So, obviously, it's hard to avoid in this episode. We have talked a lot about suicide. Um, so, if you or someone you know is struggling emotionally or thinking about suicide, you can visit spotify.com resources and there you'll find a plethora of mental health resources. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. And we just wanted to mention that for today's episode, we referenced reporting from PBS, Rolling Stone, and ABC News. And remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every single week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, make sure you follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, that firstly, thank you very much. And secondly, uh, do you know what the satanic verses are? Because I guarantee you, they are not what you think. We have an episode coming up on the Rushdie affair, the fatwa up against Salman Rushdie, the author of the satanic verses. He went into hiding for nine years for writing a novel, a fictional piece of work. And we will be covering that on Red Handed any day now. So get over to the mothership. You can also follow our social media presences at Red Handed the Pod on all of the things. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. 
Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters, and Tracy Levy. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood. And fact-checking by Cara McAleen. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. <laughs>